It used to be cool to build a B2B software company to 100 million in revenue. But you know what's cool now? Scaling a B2B tech company to a billion dollars in annual recurring revenue, continuing growing over 50%, and potentially a market value or 50 billion or even 100 billion. At Battery Ventures, we call this new paradigm billion dollar B2B. I'm Dharmesh Thakur, a Battery Ventures general partner and host of the Billion Dollar B2B podcast. Welcome, and please join us for insights from top B2B corporate executives, founders, and CEOs about how you can successfully scale your own company in this dynamic market environment. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Rebecca Buckman, Head of Marketing at Battery Ventures. In this first episode of our Billion Dollar B2B podcast, Battery General Partner Dharmesh Thacker chats with Ali Gotzi, the CEO of super unicorn data and analytics company Databricks, part of the battery portfolio. Their conversation focuses on the softer side of scaling, specifically finding and trusting the right people to run the non-engineering and non-product parts of your business. Gotzi also riffs on monetizing open source products, working with cloud giants like Amazon and Microsoft, and how and when to kick off an enterprise sales motion. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Thank you, Ali. It's great to be here. So, Ali, today we are here to talk about this whole concept of, you know, billion-dollar B2B, which is something that Battery has been talking a lot about lately, both in Forbes and other uh, content syndicates. You might recall, just a few years ago, most companies used to go public at $100 million, you know, in revenue, slow growth to 30 40%, maybe go out public at a billion valuation and then grow their way to $5 billion. And it wasn't that long ago. And now for the very first time, it feels like many companies are going out at 500 million. They're talking about growth rates north of 50, 60%, even at that scale. They're either going out public at 10 billion and getting their way to 50 billion, or in some cases, they're hitting the market straight at a 40, 50 billion dollar valuation, as you've seen with UiPath and Snowflake and a few other companies. So, uh, and to top it all off, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, who all reported their earnings this week they're all collectively at like $100 billion in revenue, still growing 40%. So what the hell's going on? Like, did we just miss all this and it just happened overnight? Like, Yeah, so I mean, a few things I would say. Uh, one is that there is a secular trend of the cloud and innovations that it enables. So that changes everything. In some sense, everybody's doubling down on the cloud, moving everything they had on-premise to buying these services in the cloud, right? So that's that gives huge momentum to the three big clouds scale companies mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So they're growing gangbusters. They're replacing all the IT budgets of every company on the planet. Mm-hmm. That still has long to go. Then on top of that, what has happened in the past is a lot of people were just lift and shifting what they had on premises to what's in the cloud, just moving the VMs over and so on. But now what's happening is that startups are unlocking uh, the real value of the cloud, which is SaaS and PaaS offerings on top of these clouds that are not just a lift and shift a copy of what you had on prem. Mm-hmm. So they're innovating and doing things in a different way. So you see that with lots and lots of companies. And so it's basically unlocked this new wave of innovations that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one really important thing. So you see a lot of these companies that are doing well, they're doing things differently in the cloud. The second thing that's happening is that access to capital has increased, mm-hmm. which then helps fuel the you know these companies, these innovators, the entrepreneurs who then actually have a, have a lot of capital. And access to capital lets you actually kind of get ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Databricks, we raised a lot of money uh, and it was deliberate and we invested it in GTM, 
So we hired ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. If we had to be profitable and invest it back in the business, it would have taken us longer to get where we are. Instead, you raise billions of dollars, you hire a lot of salespeople, and then you can actually scale in much faster pace than anyone's seen before. So that's the second thing I would say that has fundamentally shifted. You know, you, this, this model of raising massive capital and then just hitting the gas, and it's okay that you're in the red for five, six, seven years, and later you sort of turn the dial, mm -hmm. that was not possible 10, 20 years ago. No one could do that because that kind of capital no one would give you. Uh, and then I think markets are also heated. Right? Yeah. So that's also happening. So I'm sure there's going to be somewhat of a correction at some point that happens. Yeah. But it can't just be all go-to-market, right? So what do you think like Databricks did right in the early days, either from the markets you pick to the products you build to the people you hire? Like, what do you think you guys did right to jump on this, you know, bandwagon of path to a billion-dollar B2B? Yeah, I think actually the first 20 employees are extremely important. Uh, a lot of people talk about culture. What's your culture principles? There are books on culture. People talk about it. But in some sense, culture is as simple as the first 20 people you hire, that's your culture. Okay, those people will influence all the decisions. They're going to be very powerful in the company for many years to come, mm -hmm. and they're going to make sure that you hire people like them. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, by the way, has other issues, right, around diversity and so on. <laughs> but those twenty-first, if you're really picky and you have really good first 20, 30 employees, that's going to actually set off this cultural sort of wave that continues to feed those kind of people. So in Databricks' case, the twenty-first were extremely smart. They were all out of UC Berkeley. Amp Lab Research Lab, right? They were all PhDs. They're highly innovative. And they sort of came from this Berkeley mindset, which is if you ever lived in Berkeley or if you went there, it's kind of like anything goes. No idea is a bad idea. You can change anything. You can change the world, you know? And some of those ideas are really crazy. Some have had big impact in the world. Uh, so I think the company started with sort of a core, to 10, you know, 10, 20 people that were like that. And that helped us tremendously uh, over the years. So I think that's one thing we got right. And we didn't know. The first engineer we hired was just off the charts smart. Mm. He turned out to be extremely good. Mm. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. We just thought this is the first engineer. So then every other person we interviewed, we used to compare them with this first engineer. Mm. So we rejected the next 10, 20 engineers that came <laughs> our way, which actually happened to be amazing. Later we found out that actually we were just extremely lucky with this first person. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to kind of change the bar a little bit. Uh, but that actually made us very, very picky in the early days. Mm -hmm. So I, I think some of it was also just pure luck. Yeah. It's interesting how, you know, when I gave you a choice between market, product, people, you pick people and the first 20 people and this amazing engineer that you hired. Uh, what about your personal story? I mean, you know, you talked a lot over a few recent podcasts about growing up in Iran, suddenly being uprooted to move to Sweden, then ending up here as a PhD. Like, let's break it down. Like, just going from a PhD in academic and computer science to running a 2,000-person company, like pretty sudden shift. You don't hear this happen that often, right? So what do you think drove your success today? Like what are any personal kind of characteristics growing up or going through adversity that you think helped you along the way? Yeah, I mean, this first journey? of all, I would say there's a good element of luck in any of these things, right? So that's one. Uh, the second thing, I, I do think we happen to be that original team, the first 10, 20 people was remarkable, mm -hmm. right? So like I think they were going to do great things. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that they stuck together for such a long time, the seven co-founders still sort of working together, was also important because now you had lots of really strong people that were helping out in different parts of the business. So mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of luck and I think it was like the right time and the right group of people that were together. For my own personal story, I think um, I got to see lots of different cultures, lots of different um, sort of environments. We, you know, we moved a lot. 
uh, you know, the value system was different in the different mm-hmm. neighborhoods we were moving between, going from academia to business. So as a kid, there was a lot of big changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after a while, you understand that, you know, your parents are going to just change everything up on you every year or so. Uh, so you actually start becoming good at sussing out what's the dynamics here in this new environment? Who's who? What happens? How do you succeed in this particular environment? Because the same techniques that made you successful in the previous school or this new neighborhood mm-hmm. is not the same. Uh, and I think that's helpful, and I think it's particularly helpful if you're a CEO, because as a CEO, you have to basically get a bunch of different departments with very different people working together. You know, you have a marketing department, you have a sales department, you have a customer success department, finance department, engineering department, HR department, mm. customers, investors, press. Each one of these are different. They're wired differently. They have different value system. Mm. They actually don't appreciate the same things. Mm. They don't value the same things in life. How do you actually figure out how you can actually make them all tick and work together and get along? Uh, it basically requires you to be able to simulate how they think mm-hmm. and have empathy for each different persona that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my background, I think I was lucky it helped me to learn that skill. I don't think it's the only way you can learn it, but I think that has helped me be able to sort of uh, speak, yep. the, speak to the way that, you know, each individual, how they're thinking. Every time I talk to someone, I'm thinking, how will they kind of, how are they thinking about this? Mm-hmm. What's their values? And what are they... What makes them tick? Uh, instead of me just talking about myself and the company, and here's yeah. what we're trying to do, here's our goal, here's what's good for me, here's how you can make, help make me successful, instead, you turn it around, right? Yeah. Even with your customers. The software I'm giving you is to make you successful. I want you to get promoted using the software. Mm. I want, I'm on your side, I'm trying to make you the hero of your organization. What's the company priorities of your customer, you know, your company, and so on. So I, I think that's an important perspective that you know, yeah. I was helped with growing up. Yeah, but there's one of you, and then there's these 20 people you hired, which is incredibly important, as you said, and then other companies, 2,000 people, right? So I guess this two-part question, given your background and given the, you know, how adaptive you have to be, how does that influence the kind of people you hire in your core team? And then when you hit some of those roadblocks, like it's not possible for you to hire every person in a company, you know, as big as you are. So along the journey, the last eight, 10 years, and your last five years as CEO, when did you hit some of those inflection points where you lost control in terms of the kind of people you hire? And then how do you enforce the same consistency in the people you hire as a company skills? Yeah, I mean, look, so in the beginning, it's just product market fit phase. Mm. It's I don't think it's actually super important, your leader or CEO, what kind of background they have or so on, right? Mm. These the skills that I'm referring to, I'm not sure they were extremely important in the early days. Really, it's just maniacal focus on making sure that this part product mm. brings value to some group of people, some markets. That wants to use it so you just have to keep that iteration happening and you do that you get to sort of 100 employees 150 employees but around 100 150 at some point you find that product market fit that magical mm. you know now people actually want this mm. uh, so now we have to scale the operations of building this getting the customer feedback and selling it and marketing it that point there's an inflection point where you're starting to scale the business you need a lot of these other departments. Before that, you know, product and engineering are kind of the most important departments. Mm. But after that, now sales becomes important. As soon as sales becomes important, finance becomes important so that you're controlling how much money you have. Now you have enough people. Now HR is suddenly extremely important. And now you're starting to recruit. The TA department starts becoming really, really important to hire, right? So slowly each department becomes more and more important. That's when you actually have to branch out. And you have to take a bet on people that don't have the same background as you. Because mm. each CEO grows up in one department. They came from whatever, sales, marketing, or engineering, whatever it is, they understand that well. They're not experts in all the other departments. So now you really have to kind of flex your muscle and figure that out. So, and by the way, now that you're over 100 people, 
you no longer can keep track of everything and everyone. Yep. So you've hit Dunbar's number, 150. Yeah. Uh, now you have to put processes in place. Uh, you can't be everywhere anymore. So that's really when the first challenges uh, come along and you really kind of have to change the company fundamentally to succeed. Mm. So that, I would say that was our first challenge. And actually, sure. it's very close to around the time we got to meet. That's right. I just happened to be opportunistic here. I get it. Um, well, if you look back, though, what could you have done differently? Well, in hindsight, when you look back at all the major decisions you made and all the major changes you made, you're always frustrated why you didn't do them faster. They're yeah. so obvious when you look back at them. So it's just, could we have done these decisions faster? Could we have just been more, uh, much more aggressive when it came mm. to, uh, to sort of quickly fixing issues? That's the main thing. You know, you look back and say, how did it take us two years? To do that. Why did it take us three years to do that? Why couldn't we just do that in one month or two months? Yeah. And I think that's where people who have seen the movie, it actually helps pattern matching. Uh, so what do you do if you're like me and you haven't seen the movie before? Hire people who have. Yeah. Hire people who have seen it and they can just tell you, hey, I saw this when we got when we went public, we saw this. This happened to us. Here's what we did. Yeah. And you can faster learn from other people's mistakes and make the changes more quicker. So that's the main thing that bothers you. It's like, well, why didn't we go faster? Yeah, I hear you. I know many CEOs struggle with rewarding loyalty versus doing what's right for the business. And the number one thing that comes up when I talk to several of my CEOs, like, I wish I'd made those changes sooner. But, you know, at the time, it certainly feels difficult. So you can't really penalize yourself too much for it. Um, I get it. Okay. I think well, we, yeah, go ahead. It is a race against time. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, it's like you, you got to innovate, move fast, grow your revenues, and you have to do it as fast as possible. Yeah. Right? Uh, so anything you can do to move faster and get these things right uh, is a strategic advantage. Yeah. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't look back and say, hey, you know, I think, you know, it's just a vanity thing. You know, everyone says we should have done it faster, but yeah. I think we were pretty good. No, I don't think so. Actually. I think we could have moved faster. We got to learn from it. And in the future, we have to move even faster. Yeah. Uh, so I do think that's one of the major things because, you know, speed is an advantage. Velocity is an yeah. advantage. And it's a, these are unprecedented times in general, not just for you not having been a CEO before, but because of the fact that even at 500 million to a billion in revenue, you're expected to grow, you know, 50, 60 plus percent, which is unprecedented territory for most companies, right? So you're right, you're going to have to make some of those bets quick, you have to make them proactively, and you have to constantly kind of be on this high growth curve in the middle of kind of this seminal moment in the industry as, you know, cloud is taking off. And if you want to be the long term winner, you have to move fast. So I totally, I totally agree. Now, we talked a lot about people, Ali, and, you know, how, why that is so important. And I appreciate you sharing those thoughts. Let's kind of switch gears to the product and the go-to-market, right? On the product side, I'm just always amazed. Um, you know, you are the intersection of open source and cloud. People think of open source as free. And they think of cloud as extremely competitive with three players that are trillion-dollar companies, right? How do you manage to grow as fast as you have in the middle of free and competitive? Are there one or two secrets to how we monetized or how Databricks monetized our open source and cloud journey in the midst of the inherent tension that comes with free open source software and cloud competitors? Yeah, I actually think the answer lies in the combination of those two. Mm. So any one of them is more difficult to do. When you do both at the same time, you actually get strategic advantages. What I mean by that is that open source has been around for a long time, but the primary business model uh, to uh, get revenue out of it has been to sell services, support, and give away the software for free. Mm. Um, but the problem with that business model is you give your software out for free, you do support and services around it, but really the value you're selling then is support and services. And that quickly gets commoditized mm. and other people come in and do that cheaper than you. 
And then eventually it just gets outsourced to the big SIs that just can do that. And you mm. don't longer need the open source vendor to do that. Mm. But what if actually you weren't giving away the software for free? It is open source. You can download the source code if you want, but you're renting it from me in the, in the cloud. And I'm giving it to you as a service and you pay me recurring revenue for it. Uh, that combination now, I think, is different. It's no longer the case that you can easily just replace me with someone else. You're using the service. Yeah. Uh, and what I have to do then is get really good at operating that service. Hmm. And those things might not be in the open source project. The things that have to do with running that service efficiently at scale, super security, right? Security is top of mind. No one wants to have a data breach. Uh, how do you make sure that it's reliable? Yeah. How do you make sure that it's super fast and performant? And how do you make sure that this has great experience? That you can all build in the cloud and you can make it proprietary. Uh, and that gives you a moat against anyone that would just want to download your open source software and run it themselves. Yeah. So I think if you just focus on a SaaS service of your open source software and then focus on a moat around managing that service really, really well, I yeah. think it's a great business idea. I actually think it will beat the people that are doing proprietary software in the cloud mm. because why would people want to get locked in to yeah. their service? Yeah. Uh, and two, you get much more mind share because people download the open source software, they write about it, they, you know, there's a huge they community. Like the part of the journey. That's yeah, right. that huge community yeah. also becomes a moat for you. Uh, so I actually think over long term, you're going to see this repeat itself. And it's going to happen to the most advanced software that's ever been produced. Some people yeah. say, well, it doesn't work if it's a really complicated software. Yeah. Linux showed that you can do it for the most complicated software, which is operating systems, low level. Mm. You can come in and disrupt that and you can do that better than the proprietary software that's out there. So any software out there on the planet uh, is ripe for commoditization by open source. Right. But you can you can kind of defend yourself by building the proprietary knowledge base and being able to rent it out to folks so they don't have to hire expensive people to manage it on their own. In some sense, yeah. our business model is not, not much different from AWS, Amazon Web Services. They offer open source software as a services. Mm. Uh, the one difference with them is that we're actually also coming up with the innovation of the open source. We created the open source software, yeah. which actually gives us further advantages. But in some sense, we have the same business model. Yeah. Actually, that's a good point that you bring it up because, you know, when you say rent open source software to enterprise and, you know, mid-market customers, the other people who can rent software are AWS and Azure and Google, right? And there's been a lot of, you know, dilemma around whether you buy it from the cloud providers or the folks that are generating the open source software themselves. So how, how have you made it work at scale? Because not only are those guys great partners, but also investors. I mean, they participated in the last billion dollar financing, all three of them, and we work closely with many of them. So how do you manage the inherent conflict that comes with the cloud providers who also want to rent the same software you're renting? Yeah, I would say that uh, there isn't actually much of a dilemma in the sense that, uh, first of all, we bring massive revenue. So I can just say, Several of the cloud providers, we bring about a billion or more revenue to each of them. Mm. Uh, so that makes us one of their biggest customers. Mm. We also launch 6 million virtual machines every day in the cloud, and we process uh, 9 exabytes of data every month. Right, So every three days, we process a whole exabyte of data. Mm. That makes us a big customer. We're a killer app. They love us. We're important to them. We love them. They're important to us because all of the infrastructure that we use is by them. Okay, but they also have services on top of it, and those services might be competitive with what we are building. That's where the maybe dilemma appears, right? Yeah. So there is some competition between the services that might use our open source software that we built, and there might be competition there. And I would say, if you're really, if you created open source software and you're really good at operating cloud services, SaaS services, you can do really well, as we have proven, mm. and there is no problem. 
I think the friction comes, and the reason people are worried about this is when on-prem vendors that did on-prem open source yeah. move into the cloud and they're trying to offer their own open source software they had on-prem in the cloud, that creates friction because the cloud vendors are really good at operating SaaS services. Yeah. So it might turn out that some cloud vendors are better at operating the on-prem open source software that that vendor created yeah. than that vendor in the cloud. And that creates a dilemma. But we have been yeah. in the cloud since the beginning. All we do is cloud. Yeah. And we're really, really good. You know, just as good, if not better, than the cloud vendors at operating at least our own software that we develop in open source. Yeah. So it's no problem selling it. People will come to us and actually gives us a lot of strategic advantages. So so there is a, there is no dilemma. There is a little bit of overlap in competition, yeah. but it's definitely, we've proven that you can overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. XFI just sounds like so much data. Just... Uh... It's hard to fathom just the amount of data which is being yeah. processed in the cloud. We, we, uh, pro we process, uh, you know, a thousand petabytes of data every three days. Incredible. incredible. Talk, talking of, you know, the, the go-to-market motion, you're switching gears, because you made the point that, hey, there's access to capital. You can go hire a team in advance for go-to-market and be ahead of the curve because you have access to capital and you can be in the red for a period of time in order to grow your business. You know, there, there is kind of this notion these days where people talk a lot about product-led growth and bottoms-up models and the perception that gives you often, I don't agree with it, but it gives a perception that products are just going to sell by themselves. You don't need people to sell them, right? So how do you feel about it? Because on one hand, you got this immensely popular Spark and MLflow and open source offerings, which millions of people know and many people use, yet you have a sales team to go sell that software. So what would your reaction to be to this popular notion that, hey, products just sell by themselves. You don't need sales teams because you clearly have built the sales team, right? Yeah, I think it's uh, right and wrong at the same time. Uh, it's right in the sense that when Databricks started, we were doing the same thing. We didn't have any sales team. We built a killer product. It was awesome. And, you know, it had momentum. I think we actually got to 3 million ARR, mm. uh, essentially with no sales team. So that was great. And even later when we hired salespeople, it's still there was this product-led growth. So it's right in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's wrong in the sense that you're never going to get to a billion revenue uh, without probably an enterprise. If you're a B2B and you're going to sell to enterprises, the majority of your revenue probably come from enterprises. Mm. That's where you're going to make your revenue. Mm. There are very few counterexamples of that. Companies that have been able to sort of, the software sold itself or so on. But eventually, most companies, if you look at the Salesforce mm. or Tableau or any of these companies, mm -hmm. eventually reach a scale where the revenue starts slowing down and the pressure comes, are you going to be able to get the enterprise model right or not? And it's painful for them. It's painful for the CEOs. It's painful for the sales departments. And they need to make this transition to become an enterprise-ready company. Yeah. And it also requires a lot of capabilities from your platform and your product. Security features, administrative features, customizations that enterprises want. Uh, and can you pivot your company to deliver all of those? Yes or no? If no, probably it's going to be very, very hard for you to get to billions or billions of revenue. Yeah. That's just the way enterprises purchase software and use it uh, in B2B. Uh, so that's how it's wrong, in my opinion. And, yeah. you know, you have to go through it. In Databricks' case, we happened to make that transition pretty early on. In fact, when I became CEO in 2016 was when we basically started it. And we started working with Battery. That was actually the kind of beginnings yeah. of our enterprise uh, sales motion. And it was super critical. And we did that early. As a result, our revenue grew very fast and we're where we are today. Yeah. You know, had we done that later, you would have seen slower revenue growth from our side. But you're not saying it's product-led or sales-led. You're saying, hey, you could start your journey as a product-led motion, have good affinity to, you know, developers or data scientists who see value in the product. But at some point, you're also going to need 
a sales-led journey for enterprises? Because often people make the mistake saying, I have to pick either product-led or sales-led. What you're saying is product-led is great from a lead generation and customer acquisition perspective, but you still need sales to go drive revenue at scale. Is that is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I always saw Databricks as two things we did well, and the combination of the two helped each other and created tension between the two. We had awesome product teams, awesome innovation, and then we had a fantastic kick-ass sales team yeah. that was you know, putting pressure on delivering customer features and you know, back pressure into engineering and product. And the combination of these two uh, really made Databricks what it is today. I meet CEOs who say, you know, I don't want to lose track. I don't want to become a sales-oriented company, sales-driven culture. I don't want that. I want to invest in the product, so yeah. on. Uh, and I tell them, yes, but if I had come into your company and I would have also done a sales enterprise yeah. motion on yeah. top of what you're doing, I bet you I could accelerate your growth significantly. Yeah. And trust me, you're going to have to do it anyway sooner or later. Yeah. Why not start earlier? Because it actually takes a lot of investments in figuring it out, especially for product CEOs. It's hard for them to grok yeah. how enterprises buy software and the investment that's going to be needed from your platform to be enterprise friendly. Uh, so yeah. in my opinion, you should do both. And you should do both. If you just do one, yeah, it's bad. It's bad if you're just product driven and you really aren't selling the stuff. And same, same if you're just sales driven culture. So you need yeah. both. Well, when, when is the right time, you think? You mentioned that when you took over a CEO, a company at roughly $3 million in, in revenue or ARR, and you invested early in the cycle, right? So implicit in the comment is that there's somewhere later in the journey, if you're a product-led company, there's some revenue scale or customer scale or some other KPI that you look at and say, now's the time to go build the sales motion or the enterprise sales motion. When is that, you think? Well, I think you should actually, let me say one mistake I see some people do, is they start investing in this before they have product market fit. Mm. That's how you start burning a lot of money, and actually that kills a lot of companies. So they say, hey, you know, I need a, this many enterprise sellers, and I need this, this many SDRs and BDRs and this and that, and I bought them, and because of this many people, if they each bring in this much, we're gonna hit this revenue target. But they don't quite have the repeatable product market fit, so they can't do the repeatable sales, and that, that's a problem. So as soon as you have enough people that you have demand, where lots and lots of people wanna use the software, they wanna buy it, and they yeah. can't get enough of it, this is the time when you should start investing. I think it's great to start actually in SMB and mid-market because they're going to be more light on you in terms of requirements yeah. and they're going to be more forgiving and they're going to ask more for future looking features. So that's great. So start with those. That's how we started too. All of our yeah. first customers were small companies. Uh, but at some point you need to also start investing in the enterprise side. And if you can do that earlier, you can earlier start building the yeah. SOC 2, FedRAMP, HIPAA, yeah. compliance, customization, All the fun stuff. management, budgets. Yeah admin features, back office admin features, integrations that they need. Uh, that's going to take time as well. Yeah. So think of it as a strategic advantage. Ali, you, you make it sound so easy. Like, you know, you clearly, there's a lot of work in terms of, you know, the product, how you design it for the early customers, the sales motions, dealing with the cloud providers, the open source software. There's a lot of things that go in to get to where you are, right? And yet it just feels like the beginning of the journey. So. Like when you think about the next five years for this company, your paths to five, 10 billion in revenue, how are you switching gears now? Like what are you doing differently now as you prepare for the future? Yeah, up to now, the focus was really doing really what we started with really, really well mm -hmm. and making sure that that really fits the market and then getting the sales motion going and so on. What changes now for us is now we're a multi-product company. So now the idea is how do you build a factory which then produces new products? It's no longer about me coming up with that idea or my co-founder, Matei or Reynolds or someone coming up mm -hmm. with that great idea. No. How do we replace ourselves? How do we create an institution 
that will create innovations on its own. And those innovations have product market fit and you sell them and do that in the data analytics space. That's the problem that we have to solve now. So it's no longer I'm trying to figure out, is this how we should build the product or is that the product or which product should we build? How do you build a machine that then itself mm. produces these? Let me give you an example. Like Andy Jassy wakes up or you know now Adam Slipsky at AWS, they don't sit there and come up with new products. They have a machine that generates those innovations for them. And you need to get to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, that's the obsession now. So how do we configure the company in such a way to encourage that kind of risk taking and that taking those kind of bets without also betting on the whole farm and taking too many risks. Uh, so how do you kind of regulate that? That's a really important one aspect of it. The wow. second thing that comes with the territory when you're our scale, 2000 employees, sort of our revenue size and so on, uh, is you have to start optimizing a lot of things. It's no longer growth at any cost. It's no longer let's just splurge money on everything and let's just, you know, pour on you know, more and see if we can get more fire, but rather how can we do more with less? How can we cut? How can we do you know, less resources and do more with that? Mm -hmm. And that requires a different type of executive or leadership or people with different skill set that come in and operationalize excellence so that you can actually start optimizing your business. We didn't optimize much in the first bunch of years, right? So yeah. it was, you know, there was no, we just had a lot of money and we're trying to figure out, can we get this thing to sell? Does anyone want it? And then you're like, oh, it's growing. Can we get more growth out of this thing? Yeah. Uh, but then you reach a certain size where it's like, now we got to start getting efficiencies in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Any, anything else specific that keeps you up at night as you think about the next five years? Yeah, it's, it's really building the factory that mm -hmm. itself will just carry on. Uh, you know, I look at Microsoft as a company, for instance. It's, you know, four or five decades after the founders have left. They're no longer in that. There's many new generations of people that are there. So in some sense, you've replaced all the individuals in the organization. Yeah. Uh, it's still innovating. It's still producing massive revenue. It's a Fortune 1 company. Uh, you know, that's a te testament to that institution. Yeah. How do you create an institution like that? That's the thing that keeps us up at night and trying to figure it out. And what's the right way to do it? And we don't want to also just replicate what some of those companies did. Yeah. Right? We want to create the next generation of institutions that actually have some competitive advantages structurally compared to those institutions of the past that were created. That's great. That's great. And I know you have partnerships with many of these companies, so you're in good company in terms of learning from the best. Uh, I'm sure given all the amazing experience you had as a founder and CEO, you get pinged by a lot of founders and other CEOs who want to learn from you, especially in the B2B software space. Um, there's probably more requests than there's hours in the day, but any, any advice you would have for other founders who found product market fit, but are looking to scale their business, right? I mean, like, you, for the first time, like I said, seeing companies get on that billion-dollar B2B journey, many of them are much farther behind in the journey, but they're putting the foundations in place now to get there. What advice would you have for them? Yeah, don't focus so much on the smart stuff, figuring out how we're going to sell this, how we're going to price this, what's the right way to price this, what's my sales motion, mm -hmm. uh, how am I going to work chart this correctly? Stop spending so much time on the smarts. Mm -hmm. Spend your time on the healthy stuff, on the people stuff. The hard part for you is going to be how do you find the people that you can trust mm -hmm. and they don't have the same background as you and together you're going to take the hill for the next five years and it's going to be very hard for you. Mm -hmm. So how do you find those leaders? That's hard. How do you build trust with human beings that you don't know and they don't even, they don't even have the same similar background as you because yeah. they're not product market fit product people like you. Mm -hmm. They're different. They want, so how do you find them? How do you grow them? How do you build trust with them? And how do you over the next many years do well with them? So it becomes a people problem. Uh, and that just means you have to start early, you have to take bets on people, you have to build those relationships, you have to build trust with them. How can you coach them? How can you be coached by them? How can you get together 
and uh, build this company together. That's the biggest challenge you're going to have. Not what's the smartest way to price this product. You're already probably really good at that because you're probably really good at math and you probably did that, you know, your whole yeah. upbringing. That's yeah. not going to be your problem. Your problem is going to be people. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Now, are, are there any examples that come to mind? Like, you know, somebody from perhaps a non-product background, maybe HR or finance who has done this well? Yeah, I would say all my executives outside of engineering and product don't have the, the kind of background I have or we had. They found the first 20 people. Uh, my favorite would be probably our head of people, uh, Amy, right? She's, you know, PhD in clinical psychology oh, wow. and she deals with people all day long and she has EQ through the roof. And after she joined the company, uh, we do this annual culture survey, just the metrics that we have on inclusiveness, feeling of belonging, you know, will the company take action when you ask them for feedback or do you have a voice in this company? Those metrics just shot up, you know, for the whole company as a whole. Right, and that's a that's an example of a person that's probably very different background uh, than me, and you know did wonders for this company. Uh, but you have to make sure that you actually can trust those people and bring them in and empower them and make them successful in the company. So that's yeah. one such example. Yeah, no, look, kudos to you. I mean, you you spend an inordinate amount of time. I know working with you, how much time you spend in terms of the hiring decisions we make and kind of you know the folks we get on the table. So a lot of that shows here as you kind of scale your team. And so thanks for sharing that feedback. Any other advice for product-centric CEOs you would have as final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, focus the things that you're not comfortable at. You know, mm -hmm. don't don't go back to the things that you probably are really really good at. How do you augment the things that you're probably not as good at? And how do you find people to fill in those gaps? Yeah. Uh, focus your attention on that. Yeah, that's awesome. Looks like you've gone through a lot of that uh, journey already, Ali. So I'm really really excited about the next step of the journey with you as we scale Databricks further. And thanks again for giving us the time here today and for letting us be part of the journey. Thanks so much, Darmesh. Thanks for the support all these years. Of course. Of course. Thank you.